Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around, drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 122, Remembering 9-11 in Verse. Today, we are delighted to entertain Andrea Carter-Brown, whose collection of poems about the 9-11 attack in New York was just released in September. So welcome, Andrea. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you had such an interesting set of poems because as everybody knows, this is the 20th year anniversary of 9-11. We all remember much like when the Challenger exploded, when the towers fell, everybody remembers where they are. This is a very turning point for a lot of people. It changed their feelings about not feeling safe anymore. And you've dedicated a whole set of poetry to it. How did you start on this? Was it just catharsis? Where did you get started thinking about that? I didn't start it as catharsis. It did do that for me somewhat, but I started it as a attempt to add to the historical record a perspective which I didn't feel was being covered. Namely, it was my somewhat unusual experiences that day and in the aftermath, which as far as I'm concerned is ongoing. Part of what the pandemic has done to us, I think, is it's made us feel obviously less safe in some of the ways we didn't feel safe after 9-11. Right. And 9-11 prepared me for the pandemic in a way it didn't prepare other people. <laughs> you lived in New York City, correct? I did. I lived a block from the World Trade Center. Wow. And I was there that morning and I fled upon receiving a phone call from my sister in North Carolina who had seen the plane going into the North Tower on Good Morning America, of all things. Yeah. And, and I looked out my living room window and knew immediately, just instinctively, that they, the towers would come down. This was, uh, you know, maybe shortly after nine o'clock. Mm -hmm. So it was early. It was before things got really bad. And I just, in order to stay as far away from the towers and the things that were falling from them as possible, I fled south somewhat unusually mm -hmm. and ended up on Staten Island, um, where I didn't know a soul. <laughs> and then by a, a really circuitous route, through New Jersey and Rockland County. I ended up that night, 12 hours later in Westchester, where my husband coincidentally was in a business meeting. Was he aware of everything that had happened at the same time or? He entered the story about five minutes before the first tower fell because he had been in transit and he walked into the meeting and they had the TV on and there was the tower on fire, he knew that I was home and he was sure that I had died when the tower came down. And, you know, you probably know this, the cell phone towers were on top of the North Tower yeah. and they came down. So there was, even before the tower came down, there was no cell phone reception because of the circuits, I'm saying circuits, but it was so completely overloaded. So we couldn't reach each other for about four hours. Nice. 
I was actually at work at the same time monitoring. I, I used to monitor security operations. So we had sensors for network sensors for trouble. And we had a number of clients that were in the world. And, and I was buried down that morning trying to figure out why I had lost track of all of these sensors. And like, this makes oh. no sense. Everything is fine. And it took that for one of the people in the sock with me to grab my shoulder, almost the back of the neck and tilt my head up to look at the picture of what was going on in the news because I had been so buried in, why can't I reach this? What's going on? There's there's no obvious networking reason why I shouldn't reach this. So I yeah. understand. I think a lot of people were so surprised <laughs> by what happened and it took a long time to sink in. I mean, I when my sister called me, I hadn't, I mean, as close as I lived, I hadn't heard anything. That's what I was going to ask. I, I had no idea that the world had changed. What can I say? My world has certainly right. changed. Sure. How, and, and the other thing that was strange is that in the, in the period of time that I was still in the apartment or were leaving, everything was quiet. Hmm. There were no, there were no sirens. There were no cops. There was, I know that there was a massive rush to the towers, but the only thing that I could hear besides the sounds of, from the fires hmm. and the debris and um, screams were helicopters circling overhead in this sort of around the smoke that was rising and unable to do anything, unable to lower anyone to evacuate people. It was a crazy event. So well, it didn't end on that day, did it? I mean, there was dust in the air. There was, I mean, I, anybody who's ever watched anything being, I would say, demolition of buildings, how much lead paint was suddenly in the air, how many, you know, the the dust, the crap, the asbestos that must have just run through the entire state of New York. Have, I mean, I don't think we've seen the last of all of that, right? No, and there's still people being diagnosed with diseases directly related to exposure to things that were released that day. One of the, one of the many <laughs> struggles was that the government didn't have testing gear, which could detect heavy metals, which had been pulverized so fine that as far as they, they were reassuring people who live nearby or workers or tenants or businesses that no, the air was fine. You know, it was just, it was just the, they said the asbestos flew away quickly. Well, the asbestos was, was, was in crystals, which were minuscule. And so it, that ignorance and that boosterism guided the response in a way that made many of us very angry for a long time. It affected how quickly people could move back into their homes, meaning they were told their apartments were, quote, habitable, meaning safe way before they were safe. Our landlord, we had a, a, we rented an apartment in this complex. Our landlord was supposed to replace all of the carpeting and paint all the surfaces and replace all the air conditioning, heating units, and all of the kitchen appliances. And he didn't replace the carpeting. He didn't power, HEPA vacuum the hallways. 
They didn't seal off the ventilation ducts, which of course stuff was still coming in. Because depending on which way the wind was blowing, it was blowing in our direction. So anyway, I, one of the reasons I'm living in California is that we moved because my health had been compromised by exposure to the dust. I have a particular form of asthma, which is called RAD, reactive airways disease. Whenever I'm near construction debris, I start sneezing, my throat gets constricted, I get hives, I start wheezing. This was a kind of asthma which was not well documented at the time, but from which many of us now suffer. Mine is under control thanks to a good team of doctors in California and the uh, the help, the studies being done by the World Trade Center Health Registry. Mm-hmm. Did, you, um, did you have RAD at all before? Absolutely not at all. Nice. Yeah, not at all. And so here I am. But in addition to that, I have to say that living adjacent to a a construction site slash toxic waste site mm-hmm. is not conducive to resuming one's life. There are there were many and constant reminders of that day. And the, the buildings that I lived in was a complex called Gateway Plaza. On September 10th, 5,500 people lived there. When we finally moved back in, um, in early March of the following year, only 500 people had come back. Wow. Everyone else had left. And for months and months, probably a whole year, uh, there was a central courtyard in this complex that cars could drive around. And the building owner parked enormous dumpsters, Mm. heel to toe around the, the circular drive. And all day long, People were throwing out stuff, just emptying apartments and getting rid of everything they owned. I believe it. I have, so, I have sort of a question in all this. So you, as you had been a writer and a poet long before this, how did the stress affect your creativity and your ability to, to put all of these thoughts and emotions and memoir into words? What did stress do? It shut me down initially for a long time. I didn't, I didn't write at all for, I mean, at all for about six months. A lot of other writers and other kinds of artists very quickly went into a creative spell. And so a, a lot of early work came out in response to this. Hmm. Not me. And But I was thinking about the story and the shape of the manuscript that eventually became September 12th from the beginning, partly because the trajectory of my story was an odyssey. It started and ended at the same place. It felt like a domestic odyssey. I thought, oh, how interesting. And the time came when I about a year and a half later, when I started 
working in a concentrated way. But even then, to uh, revisit the places, the experiences, would be so emotionally draining that I, I would work for a day and then it would take me almost a week to recover. And that went on for a few years. Why I, I guess I'm a masochist, why I kept at it, it's a little mysterious to me, but I was stubborn. I felt that this story, that someone needed to document this kind of 9-11 experience. And then I learned that the I grew up in a small commuter town in New Jersey called Glenrock, which funneled its uh, workers to Wall Street because that was where the trains, the trains went to Hoboken across the river. And then the commuters would take, at that time, ferries across to Wall Street. I learned that that town lost, very small town, lost 11 people that morning. And that, knowing that town well, I could appreciate how how everyone would have known everyone else, one way or another, just the, the network of connections. And it made that aspect of 9-11, meaning the loss of life, the, the loss of particular lives, energized me right. and changed the changed for me the focus of this book so that my story became a a sort of backstory to the story of the larger losses. I could see it being a community because this this was one of the first shared tragedies that was boom, we're great reacting to individual event tragedies, you know, wars wage on things. But when they're just a day, it somehow feels sharper, doesn't it? Like, yes, I agree. I can look at it and say, really, there's only a couple thousand people that died, you know, instantly at that day. And compared that to the hundreds of thousands that have died from COVID. But somehow it feels more immediate and more raw because it was a lightning flash, wasn't it? It was a lightning flash, and it was a, it was something that we had never experienced before. And it also was preserved by those portraits in grief, with the New York Times did for as many years as it took to do a little portrait of everyone who could be documented who died. And so, those of us who were still reading the New York Times. Every day, there would be a new group of victims, and we didn't avoid reading about them. We wanted to get to know them. I think so many, so many things have happened since that it's hard to keep track. As you said, the hundreds of thousands of people just in this country who have died of COVID, I know a few of them. Probably you do too. Um, And I know people's lives who've been just upturned by the way in which their loved ones died, which is hard to come to terms with. That's one of the things is that the COVID deaths, I mean, unless you're actually a healthcare worker, 
we don't see them. You know, we, we hear the numbers and we speak to friends, but we don't see the deaths. Um, whereas 9-11 was, you know, it was worldwide. Everybody's seen that. And I think that makes a difference too. That's a good point. I mean, I think the reporting about COVID has attempted to take us into hospitals and to take us into nursing homes. But there's a sameness. First of all, people are covered up, protect themselves. So you're not seeing uh, eyes. You're, you know, you're talking through layers. There's no, or very little for a long time, there was no touching. Now, there was none of that in 9-11. But, for example, one of the things that I saw was uh, in in a... um, in a disaster, uh, one's faculties can be bizarrely made more acute. So I was saying earlier, it seemed to me like the world had gone quiet while this was happening, except for those helicopters. But when I stood on the ground and looked up at the North Tower from just outside my apartment, I saw some people on floors doing things that how could I have seen that? And yet these are not images that I picked up anywhere else because I had them early. So somehow my sight saw a man in an office hurling a heavy office chair at a window, Mm -hmm. trying to break it Mm -hmm. repeatedly because I must have looked up for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Then on a nearby floor where some of the, you know, the very thick glass had been blasted out. So the, the window was open and I saw uh, two young women, you know, the kind that would have been, well, I call them secretaries then, but they probably be data input operators now in their early twenties they climbed up on the sill of this window. They right next to each other, hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder with their legs hanging out. And they, they looked at each other. They, they held hands and they jumped together. How did I, how did I see that? Yeah. So, so when you started writing the poetry, did you, do you still see them? Are these, are these the stories that are, that people will find when they read your book? They will. I try to stick to my, in this part of the book, I tried to stick to my observed experience that day as closely as possible. And there are quite a few distinctive experiences. For example, I saw a man shot and killed on the street in Staten Island, who was about 30 feet away from me. How bizarre is that? I saw swimmers in the harbor who had jumped into the water to escape, trying to be hauled out and saved. Unfortunately, the ferry that I was on could not do that. And so I saw them and then they vanished. I don't know what happened to them. So, and you, you've done 
workshops and I understand that you've spoken and blogged before about the poetry of bearing witness. And yes. That seems like what a lot of this is, is saying almost the duty of the person who witnesses it to face it unflinchingly and say, this happened and I'm going to give you the words to make it real for you. That is some burden to take on though. It is. Well, it's probably why it took me 20 years. What can I say? <laughs> the book was finished and accepted two years ago. So I should say 18 years. Mm -hmm. And I did it in what I call fits and starts. I published two other books of poetry during this period, which had nothing to do with 9-11. Yeah. Did, did, um, did you publish any of the 9-11 poems separately before the book? Or was it always always going to be this one cohesive work? I published uh, maybe a dozen pages of poetry from the book very early on, partly because I was invited to, to write for an anthology and a journal. And I did it, but I would say the vast majority of it was never published. It just became difficult enough to create it mm -hmm. without the sort of heartbreak of rejections. What can I say? That's the life of a writer, or at least it's the life of a poet, uh, that the percentage of rejections to acceptances is, you know. Oh, trust me, this is the life of a novelist as well. Okay. <laughs> and the work is so much longer and took so much longer to write. So, uh, yeah, so I, I stayed in my private world of bearing witness. I do hope that the uh, work stands for us. It's particular, but I hope it's emblematic of a lot of experiences. Since this book has come out or when it was pre-released, mm -hmm. the overwhelming response has really taken me aback because everyone seems to want to tell me their stories. Yeah, sure. I, that's, that's, um, I spent a lot of time in the early 90s dealing with AIDS, AIDS, AIDS patients. Um, oh, people, yes. Um, and, and nursing a friend of mine through the last year of his life. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I talked about that to people, I mean, total strangers at parties, and they would, as you say, they would tell me their stories. It's, I mean, yeah, it's it's a human thing. Every, I mean, not everybody has been through what you've been through. Not everyone has been through what I've been through, but we've all been through something. We have. I was going to say, I feel like there's an opportunity here for people like you both, writers and creatives and poets, to to help people saying that, Yes, maybe you have some stress that's been shut down your creativity, but I think writing helps and I think journaling helps. And do you feel like you have an opportunity to reach out and say, you can find some kind of release with this too. You can put it on paper so that it can't hurt you as much anymore. I do it all the time. But a lot of people who are not writers are so intimidated by the idea of writing that they can't break through to the place where they're, it's as natural as talking. There's a self-consciousness which intervenes between 
either the hand and the keyboard or the hand and the paper. And I find that weird because for me, the self-conscious thing is talking. <laughs> yes, well, um, well, you, well it, we're, we're writers, so that's why. <laughs> well, as paper, yeah, writing, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an expression of emotion over time. Um, you get to think about things, you get to figure out what you're going to say and say it in the way that you really want it said. And, and you know, it's, it's so much easier than talking. It is. And you feel less vulnerable because you right. can be in a place where you where you have control over your, your emotional safety. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's been a wonderful body of poetry to come out of the AIDS crisis. Mm, totally. And I, and I think it was a, in addition to the political activism about the medical neglect, the initial medical neglect. And the, I think it, the, the, Poetry contributed to an emerging sense of community around the issue. Yeah, um, I lived in New York at the time, and it was, it felt like as horrible as it was, and it was a wonderful phenomenon to see that happen and to experience that devastating work, but emotionally just so powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't think the same thing has happened with 9 11. Well, again, it, I mean, it was it was a as as we've said, it was it was a bolt of lightning. It was one thing. I I, I don't see that that could uh-huh. forge the same kind of sense of community response that AIDS did, because AIDS had years and years, and it had people all around it and and inside it. Yes, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Nine eleven seems like an external thing to me, whereas AIDS is internal. Well, uh, if you were in New York yeah. on nine eleven, yeah. which is an enormous city, it would not have felt external. But so, out of that community came an outpouring of creativity, and then then it stopped, as far as I can tell. Okay, I'm not. I'm not complaining. I'm just. I just think that the difficulty that people had of grasping this event made uh, encouraged the natural emotional shutdown that happens after a traumatic event to take hold pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I definitely feel that this outpouring of stories is a sort of delayed reckoning. And I think the reckoning has been facilitated, I'm very sorry to say, by the wars, the natural disasters, the refugee and immigrant crises that have been festering. The Many of them propagated by yes. America's response to 9-11. Yes, I agree with you. At least when you think of things like earthquakes and tornadoes and Katrina, for instance, those are all a little bit of deus machina, you know, if they're not a human did this. And so, but I wanted to ask an actual technical question of all of this. Okay. 
Would you recommend if somebody was getting started writing poems, trying to bear witness to what they've seen, put history and memoir into some kind of verse, do you think they should try for any kind of format or a, a rhyme, a meter? I mean, a lot of people think of poetry, they think of sonnets and a few of them think of E.E. E. Cummings. <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? Well, I do think that form can be a useful vessel when dealing with difficult material. And in fact, at one time, this book was, it's now a sort of slightly longish, but traditional length collection of poetry. For a long part of its existence, it was over twice as long. <laughs> and almost the entire book was written in sonnets. Some of the sonnets were sequential, and I used the sonnet crown form in which the last line of one sonnet is repeated either identically or with some variation as the first line of the next. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really hard to do really well, but you know, it goes back to Milton. (laughs) It, it's, there's a very, very famous uh, sonnet crown about the assassination of Emmett Till by Marilyn Nelson called A Crown for Emmett Till. It's if you want to be completely turned inside out by eight poems, read it. Um, yeah, we, will, we will put a link to that, definitely. Yeah. I thought when I when this form came to me, I thought, oh, my problems are solved. I can just do it this way and I can use the form to drive it forward. And I had a lot of fun with that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the form over that length became numbing. Okay. And I was giving a lot of lines to repetition that were, was slowing the narrative down. I thought that slowing the narrative would serve the drama because it was so difficult to absorb. And I had broken it into double sonnet crowns, which were, I decided were the equivalent of chapter length in poetry. Yeah. People could stand the material Hmm. for, you know, 15, 14 or 15 sonnets. And then, you know, they had to put it down and hopefully they would come back to it. But eventually the material outgrew what would fit in that. And so in the final book, it's what's called a, hybrid collection so there's a there's a section of lyrical poems largely lyrical about life living in new york before the towers came down that that sequence which was the double sonic grounds is now an extended prose poem so you took you took you took the sonic crowns apart and rebuilt them as i did Wow. Okay. And I felt liberated, I have to say. (laughs) Did you keep the rhymings and such? Uh, I did in in any way. And then some of the, what I call the standalone moments Mm -hmm. in the sequence survived as those sonnets. And uh, so they're, they're, they have 
they start with one line and they return to that line. Gotcha. And uh, there are 14 lines and they have, some of them have end rhymes, some of them don't. They all have what I consider to be the, the sort of intrinsic drama form, the thesis antithesis synthesis of the traditional sonnet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was handy uh, for uh, material which lends itself to being argumentative. You know, you're in a love-hate relationship with this material as you're working on it. Mm. Would you um, like? Would you like to read one for us today? Sure. Wow. I mean, to give me because you were you are all talking about the high level forms of sonnet, and perhaps our readers might not all recognize it. I would love it if you read one of those examples. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm going to read one which has a very weird rhyme scheme, but which has a lot of internal rhyme. So hopefully that'll give a good impression of the liberties that I took. Okay. <laughs> you know, I like to take liberties. I mean, I'm not Keats. But working, working particularly within the strict forms like sonnets, it's all about taking liberties. Well, you may not agree that these are even sonnets, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking a risk in reading it. But for me, as I was writing it, I was thinking sonnet and I made a lot of choices because of that. So this this poem is from the middle of the book and it's from the section of poems about the victims from the town where I grew up, Glenrock, New Jersey. And it's called The Rock in the Glen, homage to Whitman. Picture a pretty town, peaceful, stately trees lining its streets, children walking to school weekday mornings. Picture cars, bikes, and pedestrians converging on the two train stations at the same time, the hurried goodbyes. Picture a quietness after the commuters leave, the pretty town like Sleeping Beauty waiting to be kissed awake when they return. Picture the spill of play, parties and gossip across yards without hedges or fences. Picture a breeze rustling the oaks and maples, spreading the news the morning of September 11. Picture a pretty town brought to its knees. Wow. I like it. I like it a lot. Thank you. We will put links to your poetry and a lot of the other things that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love email. Andrea, if somebody wants to reach out to you uh, via email or follow up on some of this, can they do that? Yes, they can. They can reach me through my website, which is andreacarterbrown.com. And there's a contact page and that email will get to me. Mm -hmm. I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter. I will put put all the links onto our webpage for you so they can find you. Wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining and sharing this with us today. This is as this is a lot of heavy thought, and I think it's only appropriate that we do that here. 
20 years later, I could look back. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you, Chaz. It was a pleasure to talk with both of you. Thank you for being such good listeners. Oh, and thank you for joining us. That's what we're here for. Yeah. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langsford. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs and any coffee shop that you happen to love visiting. And hey, thanks for visiting today. 